Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. This podcast was produced to coincide with the Rebellious Mind Seminar Series. The series was produced by the Stout Research Centre for New Zealand Studies as part of Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington's 125th anniversary celebrations. Rebellious Minds explores episodes of dissent, nonconformity, critical thinking, and eccentricity from across the university's history, aspiring to highlight stories of rebellion in political, social, and cultural life. My name is Dr. Sam Hasibi, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Brown, who is a curator at the Alexander Turnbull Library and also researches folk and New Zealand pop music. Kia ora, Michael. Thank you for accepting my invitation and welcome to the Rebellious Minds podcast. Kia ora, Sam, and thank you very much for inviting me. I was wondering if you could please introduce yourself for our listeners and tell us about what you do. My name is Michael Brown. Uh, I work currently at the Alexander Turnbull Library as the curator of the music collections of the Turnbull Library. Uh, the Turnbull is part of the National Library of New Zealand, Tapuna Matauranga o Aotearoa, uh, and it holds some of the largest music collections in New Zealand, including the Archive of New Zealand Music, which is uh, an archive of unpublished material relating to just about every genre of uh, music making in New Zealand. Um, my background is in music studies. I began to get seriously interested in researching New Zealand music about 20 years ago. This began really um, with a newfound curiosity in New Zealand cultural history that started really after I returned from a trip overseas. And I think this uh, happens to a lot of people growing up in New Zealand when they go overseas and uh, experience cultures in other parts of the world, they start to get some perspective on their own uh, background. And that certainly led me to uh, ask questions um, really about um, distinctive qualities of New Zealand music, about um, perhaps what were some of the unique stories um, by which musical styles had evolved in Aotearoa. Uh, my starting point for that was finding um, a collection of songs which um, this this book collection had been published in 1972 it was called song of a young country and it was reported to be a collection of new zealand folk songs and this interested me in that I, i had to ask myself what could be a new zealand folk song in the sense of uh, traditional songs of the european settler cultures that came to New Zealand in the 19th century. And one thing led to another. Um, I started to find out more about a a movement of um, collecting of such folk songs, which had taken place in the mainly the 1950s and 1960s as part of the general revival of folk music that was happening uh, in a lot of countries at that time. And the research started to get substantial enough that I became interested in uh, doing some postgraduate study. Uh, This led me to take 
an ethnomusicology course at Victoria University. And that was followed by a master's degree uh, for which I researched and wrote a thesis about this uh, folk music collecting movement that, that happened in the 1950s and 60s. Um, shortly after that, I started to plan a, the next stage of the research, which really came out of some of the, the questions that were raised in the master's thesis. For a start, the material that the various folk song collectors found in New Zealand, and these are people such as Rona Bailey, Bert Roth, uh, who was a uh, historian, a labour historian, Neil Cahoon, a music teacher, music educator, Phil Garland, who was a uh, folk singer, and Frank Fife, who was a emigre uh, from Australia who set up a uh, folk coffee house in Wellington. Um, but he was a folklorist as well. Um, these, uh, this, this group of people um, found a lot of very interesting material, um, asking around uh, people they knew, um, going on field trips, searching through archival sources, such as newspapers, uh, manuscripts. They found a, a lot of very interesting material, but in the end, um, they had growing doubts about really whether it qualified as folk music as it was then defined. It didn't really fit the, the definitions that they were working from, which were very much based on older European understandings of folk music or the understandings that had evolved in countries such as the United States or Australia, where settlement, colonial settlement had begun much earlier. Um, compared with New Zealand, which really had been um, settled by British and, and other uh, European countries at a stage when mass literacy um, existed. It was no longer really purely oral traditions in operation, it seemed. So what they found didn't seem authentic to them, in essence. However, they had found a lot of very interesting um, music and very interesting songs that spoke to the presence of informal music cultures uh, that were widespread throughout New Zealand in the 19th century and into the middle of the 20th century. Uh, they just didn't think they, this was authentic folk music and essentially they gave up the, the project. So when I um, looked to uh, move on to um, doctoral studies, I thought that it would be actually useful to see how we might understand all this informal music making, what was happening with it, what did it, what did it sort of show about the, the capabilities of these different communities that were making music? Why were they making music? Why were they singing? Why were they making up their own songs? Um, and that led to a different uh, theoretical formulation from folk, uh, to look at this music as a kind of vernacular music making. Vernacular is a term that um, we're probably most familiar with applied to speech, to language, to the kind of informal uh, repertoire of speech, of everyday speech. What it denotes is a degree of informality that allows uh, people to shape language quite directly and informally, um, as opposed to the sort of 
more formal literary systems of language. And if we apply this to music or other cultural areas, we can see analogous processes taking place. So for the, um, the doctorate, I looked at a number of uh, case studies that, that illustrated this theory. What they um, pointed to, what the research pointed up, was that um, in this period of uh, up to, let's say, the mid 20th century, there were widespread traditions of singing and music making in New Zealand um, that operated at a community level, at a level of social associations or occupational cultures, or at in terms of domestic music making, that meant that one, people were actually very comfortable with singing. They sang in church every week. They would sing at school. School singing used to happen in some schools every day uh, at school assemblies. They were comfortable with singing from home. Many homes in New Zealand had a piano up until the 1920s, up to 40% of homes in New Zealand had a piano. And one of the main uses of a piano was actually as an accompaniment to singing in the family. Singing was a common feature of public gatherings, social gatherings and parties. All of these sorts of um, experiences from a young age made people in New Zealand very uh, prone to break into singing, really, given an opportunity. It also, um, as well as making people feel less self-conscious about singing, it also gave them a tremendous repertoire of songs that they knew, that people knew the words for. They might only know the choruses for, but um, they would certainly be familiar with the tunes of these songs. And that gave them might say a, a body of raw material from which new songs could be fashioned. They might just be parodies of these uh, songs that they had received, but they also might have quite extensively reimagined lyrics or rewritten lyrics. Um, what you find then is when people with both proclivity to sing and a whole lot of resources, songs that everybody shares and knows and can sing along to, and you put them into an informal situation, in fact, it gives them the agency to start shaping what they're doing by singing uh, into something that really suits the social dynamic and the cultural dynamic of what's going on, what the other things that they have in common and share. And so, you, the result is a whole series of uh, song cultures. Uh, these were song cultures associated with students, such as university students, such as associated with clubs, such as rugby clubs, or tramping clubs in particular, uh, was something I, I looked at quite closely. For those who don't know, um, tramping is uh, the New Zealand term for going on hikes in the New Zealand bush and backcountry, uh, often involving multi-day, multi-night stays in tramping huts and undertaking a trip through quite rugged country. In the period um, we're talking about, tramping was often undertaken by clubs. As part of the camaraderie of this experience, um, singing was a really natural um, complement. 
we can talk a little bit more about the, the tramping club sing songs in a while, but they're really just one example of um, a kind of informal vernacular singing culture that was happening all over the place in New Zealand in all sorts of different groups. And as well as those I've mentioned, um, there were things like Boy Scouts and Girl Guides had their own song cultures. There was community singing in local communities, um, all sorts of areas. About the stories you mentioned and the song culture, I'm hoping we could focus on uh, one of the wonderful articles that you've published, which is titled Many Happy Song Sessions Kiwi Youth Sings. It's so relevant to our Kaupapa, so I was wondering if you could please tell us a bit more about this work of yours. Absolutely, Sam. So the article Many Happy Song Sessions was an article I wrote about the Victoria University student singing culture in the 1940s and 1950s. This is quite an interesting period for New Zealand, and it was an interesting period for the university. I should say that um, singing by students in parties or for public events is quite an old tradition in New Zealand. And one aspect of it is the uh, annual capping shows that, that happened in many universities annually. Um, capping shows were musical reviews that were written, devised, and performed by students. They often had a very irreverent, uh, satirical take on current affairs and used popular tunes or well-known tunes, well-known songs as a source of parody. They would be performed in town halls in, uh, in the cities where the university was based. Uh, and often received a lot of um, coverage in the newspapers. So students were already very creative in the way they used music um, to both comment on things going on in society at the time. And uh, Victoria University capping shows are absolutely no exception to this and are some of the, some of the classic, uh, most best known examples of the kind, um, extremely provocative and the period we're talking about, politically provocative. So in the 1940s, of course, this was the period of World War II. And during the war, there was a degree of censorship imposed by the government. And this actually affected capping shows at Victoria University. And, and if not censored outright um, by the authorities, the student body definitely thought better of staging some of the uh, capping reviews that were written because of the uh, pot shots they took at the government of the day and particular politicians. Because the 1940 um, Victoria capping show was called John A. Leo, which was about a politician called John A. Lee, turned into John A. Leo in the title to uh, evoke Pinocchio, uh, which was a Walt Disney film that had recently come out. And John A. Lee was a bit of a rebel within the Labour government of the day, and he actually ended up um, leaving the government a few years after that. Um, 
anyway, John Alio was never staged because um, they pulled the plug at the last minute thinking they might get into trouble. Anyway, the end of the war, um, something different happened. The student body at Victoria had a large influx of ex-servicemen who'd returned from World War II and they were taking advantage of benefits offered to them as having served overseas during the war. Um, and that was a sizable proportion of the student population was made up by ex-servicemen. Obviously, they were all kinds, um, these people, quite diverse in their views, but there was a strong contingent of quite left-wing ex-servicemen who had really come back from the war, um, a war that they had seen as an important struggle against fascism uh, to New Zealand, um, where they were thought they were defending democracy, and they took exception to what the New Zealand government was doing. They took exception to some of the international events that were taking place. That, was, that were essentially the start of the Cold War. And um, they, had, they had also come back from the war with partisan songs that they had learned in Europe, anti-fascist songs that learned in places like Italy. Um, they, had, they also had strong connections to various left-wing international students groups. Um, and around 1947, they were centrally involved in setting up what became the Victoria University Socialist Club. Socialist Club then later on, a few years after that, put together a songbook called Kiwi Youth Sings. And this was edited by two members of the Victoria Socialist Club, Conrad Bollinger, uh, who went on to become a very well-known labor historian and general left-wing activist, and Neil Grange, another um, member of the club. And this songbook really gives you a strong impression of what they were singing in the Victoria University Socialist Club at that time. It's a, it's a collection of songs people would have probably learned at school, old folk songs. Um, it also includes a lot of national anthems and national songs, songs of struggle from various countries around the world. Um, it includes songs from the Victoria Uni University capping shows, or extrads, as they were called. It includes various kinds of socialist anthems um, and includes songs from New Zealand, some Maori songs, um, some tramping songs. So it, it's, a, it's a wonderful cross-section, really, of all the influences that were feeding into these students' lives and their experiences that they were bringing to uh, this club. And these were songs that people sang at parties and they sang at the club gatherings. And they also took with them into the Victoria University Tramping Club and its various trips into the holes. I think what's quite important to state here is that, yes, this was quite a rebellious um, group of people in a lot of ways, um, these were quite radical. This was quite radical material, a lot of this, given the, the times they were living in in New Zealand. And the, the songbook was actually published in 1951, which um, 
people will recognise as a year of very significant industrial dispute in New Zealand, the waterfront dispute between the Waterside Workers' Union and various um, shipping companies, and the government itself became very involved with that, brought in the um, New Zealand Army to, um, uh, to stand in for the Watersiders and offload, offload freight from ships. So it was actually not, um, it wouldn't have been a very comfortable thing to publish the songbook in 1951. And they actually had to have it printed in Auckland by a sympathetic printer there um, instead of publishing in Wellington. It was kept quite secret. That said, um, this is far from a kind of doctrinaire or sort of strictly ideological or dogmatic series of songs. Um, and there are songs in here that um, kind of also make fun of left-wing dogma and um, the sort of cliches, if you like, of, of socialism. There, there are songs that are, that are sung to the red flag, the tune of the red flag that kind of take it off. There are, um, there's a parody in here of the, um, the English folk song, Green Grow the Rushes O, which uh, has been restyled as Red Fly the Banners O. These sort of songs, which sort of make fun of it, uh, make fun of that sort of um, left-wing orthodoxy, they really show that I think that the the value that the, the value that was held most dearly um, by this group was really freedom of thought and not to really be, um, you know, held to any particular ideological line. And of course, they were there at university and exploring ideas, exploring different points of view as, as part of um, what the university training is meant to be. What an amazing history. Um, I think I just should add here that the link to Michael's article is included in the description of the podcast if the listeners would like to read it. So for my next question, um, let's go back to tramping. You touched on the tramping club and the sing-alongs. And I was wondering if you could tell us more about the subtext of some of these um, seemingly innocent, wholesome activities like tramping and singing. They seem quaint uh, on the surface, but I suspect, and as you said, there were some rebellious stuff going on underneath. Yeah, I think the um, the tramping song culture is something that began early on with the advent of tramping clubs in New Zealand. Um, the first tramping club was formed in 1915. Um, university, Victoria University Tramping Club was formed sometime in the 1920s. Um, it was in some ways quite a... Tramping in its way was, was to a degree controversial, believe it or not, at that time. Now, it's something that a lot of New Zealanders partake in. Um, we have national parks and, and forest parks that are well equipped with huts, nicely fitted out huts, um, well marked routes. But in the 1910s and 1920s, this was not the case. There were few huts in a range, a mountain range close to Wellington, such as the Tararua range, 
there were few maps that really showed you where the uh, the main landmarks were. People were still exploring those uh, mountains at that stage, um, trying to work out the precise locations of passes and saddles and where rivers arose. And so tramping was actually quite a hazardous activity. And there were some um, highly publicized um, uh, mishaps that occurred in the hills um, where people perished. There were, there were very um, highly publicized cases where people got lost for a long time. A very famous case in the early 1930s was the Such Search, as it was known, um, which is where Bill Such, who later became a very important public servant in New Zealand, uh, and his companions went missing for two weeks um, in the Tararua Range. The, um, it was very controversial because they uh, eventually emerged from the bush, um, this party, and they uh, said that they actually had never, they weren't lost at any time. They knew where they were. And um, then Bill Such quipped, and we weren't found either, which meant that they walked out of the bush before anyone found them. And this was a sort of seen as a rather a flippant response because there had been hundreds of people searching for them for a couple of weeks. What also caused controversy about the Such search was the party was a mixed party with both men and women in it, or one woman. And this really points to the conservatism of New Zealand society at this time. And it really was similarly conservative um, into the 1950s, where the notion of young men and women going out tramping in the bush and sleeping together in tramping huts was seen as uh, not very respectable, really. Uh, and this was a little bit of a tension that tramping clubs faced with promoting the activity while also um, trying to keep a degree of respectability in the public eye. Of course, um, these sorts of trips were occasions for young men and women to get to know each other. And one Wellington tramping club, Tararua Tramping Club, uh, became known as an informal marriage bureau because so many members ended up getting married after tramping with each other. Uh, and I should confess here that that actually applies to my parents who met in the Tararua Tramping Club and ended up getting married and having a family. However, it was also a, an era when uh, one had to be quite careful um, around premarital activities. So there was no contraceptive pill uh, until the early 1960s. So really there was um, not necessarily much going on on these tramping trips, but there would have been a degree of sexual tension and attraction going on certainly. I don't think you could say that wasn't happening. So what I think is very interesting about the singing in this context is the way the repertoire of the tramping songs formed a way really to negotiate these unspoken or sometimes spoken subjects um, to raise the, the subject that was on people's minds and to kind of acknowledge it 
this happened in all sorts of different ways. There was a song repertoire that the ex-servicemen who I mentioned earlier had brought back from the army, and this was very much a um, kind of a ribald, bawdy song repertoire that sort of circulated in the armed forces. All sorts of kind of not very respectable content at all. And I think even today it would be seen as pretty much on the outer, a lot of those songs, perhaps even more so. Sing songs, though, where they involved mixed members, there was a sort of a degree of boundary testing in these to see what songs kind of were acceptable to everyone there. And of course, you can't really know that until you start pushing the boundaries a bit and seeing how people react. So there were um, songs that were quite sort of borderline, if you like, that, that were very popular. And there were also songs that seemingly quite um, innocent on the surface or just seemingly um, about sort of old folk song type topics, which actually are surprisingly relevant to the situation. And one of the most popular of all the tramping songs was an Irish folk song called Weeping and Wailing. And um, this is quite an old folk song, which took off in New Zealand tramping clubs and virtually every song session would have involved the performance of the song. It's quite an interesting narrative. I'll read, I'll read out the first verse and the chorus. And this is the text I'm taking here is from Kiwi Youth Sings, the Victoria Tramping uh, Socialist Club songbook. One day in the summer when daylight was fading, way down by the river I wandered alone. I met an old man who was weeping and wailing and rocking a cradle that was not his own. Sing idol, oh boy, sweet baby lie easy, your own daddy will never be known weeping and wailing and rocking the cradle of somebody's baby that is not your own. The song goes on to tell the narrative of this old man who's left um, with the baby while his wife is out going to parties <laughs> and having a good time. And he is not sure whether this baby is actually his own. And it's it sort of speaks to the sort of consequences of what might happen uh, if you did get um, pregnant at that time out of wedlock, that there were uh, going to be consequences involved. You wouldn't be able to necessarily go out on any tramping trips anymore for a few years for a start. What's, what's really interesting about the song is the way that it's the father, the old man, not necessarily the father, uh, who is left rocking the cradle taking care of the baby, not the mother, as of course would normally probably happen in those cases. Um, so it's a song that puts the men in the situation that a woman might face. And that's a really interesting, uh, and it also puts a woman in the position that a man might enjoy going off and not having to bear any of the responsibilities of having a child. Um, so it speaks to the freedom that the trampers felt uh, without responsibilities, uh, a freedom that um, both men and women were enjoying off being out in the bush, um, having adventures such as you wouldn't be having back in your uh, day job or your uh, student studies. Um, 
rejoicing in the situation and the fact that they weren't kind of trapped, as it were, by um, marriage or parenthood in a way that both men and women could relate to. I think another interesting thing about these little song cultures and singing sing-song cultures is that they are very dynamic as well. So the concerns that you see uh, expressed in the repertoire um, change through time as the concerns of the participants change. They're not fixed in their repertoire, um, but because that, of that informality of the situation, new material can enter very easily into the repertoire. And I think you see this happening in the uh, left-wing socialist club student circles at Victoria through the 1950s and into the 1960s when new concerns arise. So one uh, very important movement that arose in the late 50s, early 60s was the campaign for nuclear disarmament or CND. This arose from concerns about the testing of nuclear weapons. It arose from concerns about the proliferation of nuclear weapons, of growing arsenals of bombs and missiles held by various superpowers. Um, and it also arose from some of the really um, tense events of the Cold War, which seemed to be bringing the world to the brink of nuclear apocalypse. Um, even the testing of nuclear weapons was could be quite a provocative signal between the superpowers in those days. And some of those tests occurred not that far from New Zealand. Um, there were British tests in the Pacific. Of course, there were American nuclear tests and there were French nuclear tests. And so this was uh, an issue of local concern to New Zealand, and it starts to be expressed in the student songbooks of this time. And so a later songbook, probably from the earlier, earlier uh, sorry, the early 1960s, is the songbook of the University of Curious Co. Now, historians of Victoria University will know that Curious Cove was a, um, a kind of a student enclave, uh, a camp where um, students went off to debate political issues. It took place down in the Marlborough Sounds uh, annually. And this songbook um, contains some of the material from Kiwi Youth Sings, and it may be that material was passed down um, between generations of students, or perhaps the people referred to the earlier songbook. It also contains some new songs. One of these is called the workers' bomb, sung to the tune of the red flag, it goes, while Western arms we strive to end, the Russian bomb we will defend. Degenerated though it be, it is the people's property. Then wave the workers' bomb on high, beneath its cloud we'll gladly die. And though our critics all shout and falls, we'll stand beneath it when it falls. So this song, which probably originated in Britain um, from some of the later verses, really shows an, an interesting transition in issues, really, that expresses a, you like, a pan-political concern about uh, nuclear disarmament and dangers of nuclear weapons. And 
really doesn't see um, it's parodying the uh, or satirizing the um, sort of left wing or pro Soviet argument that the people need to have uh, nuclear weapons too, as well as the uh, capitalist imperialists America. So it really shows how the students were kind of prepared prepared to question, to provoke and counter provoke um, these different political positions that they were all avidly learning about and discussing at that time and didn't really take anything for granted. That was just fascinating, Michael. My last question for you is that what else are you working on currently or will be working on soon? Um, well, currently in my work at the Turnbull Library, the research has focused on a quite different area, and that is the contemporary making of electronic music in the world of New Zealand popular music. This is music that is created on computer software, which has been a, a very popular way of, of creating music over the last um, 25, 30 years. It comes, however, with a lot of um, interesting challenges for an archive to find ways to preserve, to preserve really the production of this music, not just the final product, but the production in the sense of the creative and the technical process by which it is finalized. The reason it's challenging is because the software is highly sophisticated and usually there are a range of interlocking pieces of software and components, all of which have different technical dependencies. So to try and capture a snapshot of how somebody makes music now is um, surprisingly difficult without the uh, result in itself becoming technically obsolete very quickly. So the research I've been undertaking of late with um, team at the library, um, colleagues, who specialize in digital preservation uh, has been to find some ways of doing this. The um, artist, music artist that we have been working with on this um, pilot project uh, is a New Zealand musician, Luke Rowell, who uh, works in various genres of electronic music. And um, we have worked closely with Luke over the last two years to um, find strategies to preserve music such as he creates. Having uh, completed that pilot project this year, I, in the course of, of the work, became very interested in, in Luke's music and the content and the, the wider context of what he was doing. And this led to a, uh, a proposal to write a book about one of the albums we archived for a series, 33 and a Third, that is published by Bloomsbury Academic. And I was fortunate enough um, to be granted the Scout Fellowship for 2023 to work on this project. Um, so that's what I'll be, be looking at next year. I'll be looking at both the content of the music, but, but more broadly, it will really be the context of what's happened with the digital revolution of the last 20, 25 years, the rise, the advent of the internet and the World Wide Web, the growth of these kind of digital tools that enable the making of music. And the fact that for Luke um, and his generation, this has all happened for them at a very formative time. And I think has 
helped shape their sensibilities, both aesthetic sensibilities, but also social. In a way, uh, we are presently going through the equivalent of the revolution in information that occurred in the 15th century with the Gutenberg printing press. The advent of the internet has really revolutionized the um, availability of information, the formation of transnational communities, people in New Zealand who are able to uh, be full-fledged members of uh, virtual communities made up of people from all around the world, as well as embodying various um, ideological viewpoints, um, including uh, what's called the hacker ethos, sort of uh, belief that um, uh, kind of anti-authoritarian or, or countercultural belief in its own right, um, especially the idea that information needs to be free, just wants to be free and to be shared, as well as uh, promotion of decentralized forms of networking and information sharing, such as Wikipedia. So where that's going on right at this moment, you know, and I think it's a very um, interesting times to be living in and to see what effect this is having on culture generally. And music has been one of the areas where the digital revolution has had a radical effect. Um, music uh, digital distribution has been kind of the um, testing ground um, for the whole notion of digital distribution from the uh, days of Napstar, mp3.com onwards into the present day. So music is really an area where you see this, uh, the consequences of the, the second Gutenberg revolution, if you like, um, playing out in, in profound ways. So I think that the, the book and the research, which will probably lead to a, some other writing, is going to be, uh, yeah, very interesting in exploring this, this area um, of the, the internet and its effect on New Zealand society and culture. Thank you so much, Michael, for giving me your time and sharing your ideas and research with us so generously. Uh, I really appreciate it. And I also like to thank our listeners for tuning in and hope you all stay well. This is Dr. Saman Hasibi, and this podcast was produced to coincide with the Rebellious Mind Seminar Series. You can catch our other podcasts at Victoria University SoundCloud, you can also find the links to our podcasts and the videos for the seminar series through the Stout Research Center for New Zealand Studies webpage.